Hello and welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Bill Duro of Molis, Independent Director at Large, Carol Flayton, and Nick Kalluk of Debevoise speak with Reorg's Harvard Jang to discuss how they navigate the workplace and client relationships as professionals that identify as LGBT. Doro Flayton and Kaluk are members of Workout, a group of lawyers, bankers, financial advisors, and buy-siders within the distressed debt and restructuring industry that get together regularly to network and develop professional relationships. In our weekly review coverage, the Second Circuit preserves bankruptcy court's authority to approve non-consensual, non-debtor releases in Chapter 11 plans. Diamond Sports Group directed to pay the full rights fees due under telecast rights agreements to four MLB teams. Diebold Nixdorf files Chapter 11 prepack with $1.25 billion dip in hand. And platinum-backed Wesco Aircraft and Genesis Healthcare file freefall Chapter 11s. And as always, a preview of what's coming next week. It's Monday, June 5th. Hello, greetings to Distressed Dead and Chakri Junkies, and welcome to this Pride Month special edition of Reorg's weekly podcast series. My name is Harvard Jell. I am an editor of the U.S. Distress and Restructuring News product at Reorg Research. And happy June. I have three A-list guests joining me today. Bill Darrow from Molis, Carol Flayton, formerly Alex Partners, and more recently, Carol has been an independent, independent director for Bed Bath & Beyond, National Media, Altera Infrastructure, Talent Energy, and Speedcast. And last but not least, Nick Kaluk from Deba Voice. We're having a roundtable discussion about LGBT, diversity and restructuring. But before we begin, I want our listeners to know that there is an ad hoc group of LGBT restructuring professionals who regularly get together to network over drinks and food and develop professional relationships. The group, which is called Workout, one word, uh, out, all cap, a play on words there, welcomes new members and doesn't force anyone to join. So if anyone is interested, please reach out to me. Just Google my name, Harvard John from Reorg. You can find my contact info and I will connect you with the mothership. Um, okay, so no time to waste. To begin our discussion, I, I want our guests to start their time machine to travel back to the days when they were in their 20s and early 30s, doing that first and second job in the finance and big law world. What was it like to come out of the closet at work or stay in the closet at work? Um, maybe Bill can get us started. Sure, so uh, the time machine goes back to before uh, the internet. Um, I started in uh, uh, 1988 at a uh, lease finance company in Orange County, um, and, and then in banking in 1989, uh, and I was totally in the closet. Um, uh, I was living in LA, I'd gone to school at Berkeley, um, and, you know, the good news was everyone was working so hard, uh, hundred hour weeks or whatever, that it, it wasn't unusual to not have a social life. Uh, and people, uh, it was a small office, Solomon Brothers, uh, corporate finance office in LA. And so, you know, to the extent people did things on weekends, it was here, you know, here and there, uh, I belonged to a 24 hour gym before there were 24 hour gyms. And I would go work out at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night after leaving the office, um, uh, Jeff Stryker used to work out at that gym sometimes, by the way, for those of you who remember Jeff Stryker, um, you can all Google him. Um, and we actually, we did, uh, we did bench press together one time. That was an interesting <laughs> experience, but, uh, 
I went to Channon and Company in 1991, which is a very small LA-based restructuring boutique, started by Jeff Channon, who came from Drexel Burnham. And um, by uh, that was 91. And I started dating a guy who was at UCLA Law School, who ended up going to a restructuring law firm in LA called Murphy Weir and Butler. Um, so I, I knew at some point, you know, the 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 universes were gonna cross over because he was totally out and I would go to firm events with him. Um, uh, but the first year at Shannon and company, uh, they had a, uh, uh, Jeff Shannon had a dinner at his house for Christmas. It was, I thought it was odd. Everybody was, was Jewish, but me, but they were having Christmas parties. But, uh, um, uh, so, uh, we were invited. Everyone was supposed to come and bring a date. Uh, I didn't go. I was living with Rick at the time. And uh, I made up some excuse. And so next year kind of rolls around. And uh, Sean Bookin, who was an associate, uh, and kind of sort of like one of the least, he was a, a bit, you know, kind of a man, you know, kind of old school man guy talking about going to strip clubs and things like that. But he said, oh, you know, you're, you're coming to the Christmas party, right? And I said, I don't know, and you should bring Rick. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, we all know. So they basically added me. Um, and it was sort of a big relief, uh, that I didn't have to kind of do that Ellen moment. I'm gay, uh, uh, announcement thing. And it, so it became sort of organic. Um, and so it was easier. I remember national coming out day back then. And, you know, you're supposed to tell somebody and I, it was very scary. This is, this is a time period. I was in Navy ROTC in college. People talk about don't ask, don't tell, which was a thing put in place during Bill Clinton's administration where the military couldn't ask you if you're gay and you weren't supposed to tell them. But if if it became known, you were thrown out. And, and before don't ask, don't tell, they would actually investigate. So that's why I, I didn't go in the Navy ultimately. So that was an era, the 80s and 90s, where uh, it was completely legal to fire people for being gay, to deny them housing, to deny them any kind of service there was there were no legal protections for gay people at all in uh in almost any state of california uh specifically where i was living and so um to the notion of coming out was very scary uh, uh back then because you, you you could be fired um so that's my story and i'm sticking to it <laughs> carol do you want to sure sure um, maybe a little less exciting, but as as uh, as Bill was running through it, I do remember some some uh, some parts that were uh, familiar or similar. Um, I uh, I always joke I had to move to a foreign country to get a girlfriend, so I had moved uh, in the '90s uh, to Switzerland with credit. I got asked to move by Credit Suisse First Boston, um, and uh, and had not really had like a, a long term relationship. I know unusual for women of my age. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> and I was there and I, I did meet someone and um, uh, it was in that time frame. People didn't really talk about it. Um, in fact, I remember, um, and coincidentally, he texted me today because he's coming to New York. Um, there was a, a guy in my office that I suspected was was gay and I didn't want to come out and ask him directly. So I had a gold card to the Roxy. Do you guys remember that club on 18th street? How, oh, how, yeah. I, how I got one. Saturday I nights. Saturday I, nights. I still have it. 
what was the guy's name? John, the the host. I'll look it up. It's somewhere in my drawer. Well, the, um, the doorman was Derek. No, no, no. The guy who hosted the party says on the card. Anyway, um, uh, I actually pulled it out of my wallet and I said, "Does this mean anything to you?" <laughs> and he looked at it. He goes, "Oh yes." I said, "Okay." So that's sort of how things happened, I guess, in the '90s. But in any case, um, as it relates to to work. I, I wasn't, this sort of happened in Switzerland, a little more, I think a little more conservative also just, just because it was not my home country, it was maybe a little easier, but maybe less so for her. And eventually over time, um, I guess I, I, at some point I had to actually, cause we both worked at Credit Suisse, I had to tell my, my, um, my su supervisor because I was a managing director and they have a policy that if you were, dating somebody internally. So I had to go to Dick Thornburg, who was the CFO of Credit Suisse and tell him. And he was just like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. I was like, it's not embarrassing, but that was kind of how things, you know, maybe it still works that way. Um, so I, I ended up uh, having to tell him and it's sort of, it was organic internally in the firm. And the only time when I changed, uh, I, when I left Credit Suisse versus Boston Credit Suisse and, and went to um, a city, I actually, told the new guy I was going to work for. And he said, we were out to lunch. I said, Hey, FYI. And he says, Oh, it's commonly known. So, so it's like, okay. Um, but after that, it was, you know, it's not the first thing to talk about, but it does, it does come up. Um, and, um, it's, that's maybe the beauty of the, of the small restructuring and distress industry that it, it is to some degree, like a family. So those are from the old folks. Yeah, no, well, but I, I mean, those stories <laughs> resonate with me. I actually, I, my, the story I remember the most is actually kind of being put back in the closet sort of inadvertently, which, so I, I met my now husband in college. So I had been out and then on, you know, when I was interviewing for positions in law school, I actually thought I was out on my resume because I had like an officer position in my school's outlaw group which, you know, kind of like workout, right? Like is a, is a national uh, LGBT sort of student group. And I had an interview, an interviewer ask what LGBT was, which, you know, this was in the late 2000s. And I was sort of surprised because it was an otherwise very sort of supportive atmosphere and environment. And I hadn't encountered that in a very, very long time, especially sort of being in New York. And I don't think it came from a hostile place, but it was just a stark reminder that even, you know, you can be out for a long time and still just run into things like that. And so I had to come out all over again. And I actually remember struggling with, I, like I didn't have the elevator speech about being gay sort of at hand because I hadn't had to use it for a while. And I had, you know, been in a relationship for years and all of this stuff. So it was, uh, it was an interesting experience, but I think by, that- By the way, it was a time of this is reminding me it's a little bit before my time, but I remember hearing about it. Supposedly, you know, kind of prior to, I guess, the 80s, um, and maybe people, uh, I, I did hear, like, older people, the phrase, are you a friend of Dorothy? Yeah. And I never, I don't remember ever, like, using that line myself, but that was sort of a way of people to kind of say something, like like Carol's story about this, this card mean anything to you, to the Roxy, of uh you'd say something and you know someone's head would pop up and say oh you must be you know a fellow traveler uh, i remember at solomon brothers uh uh the men who worked in the corporate finance library 
you're like guys working in the library probably get i mean and it you know i you know i would i, I was in the la office there in new york but i taught and i like you know you'd call them for stuff because before the internet you have to get 10 k's 10 q's and i don't i don't think i said dorothy but i sort of found a way you know working between the lines that arthur demaglio and another guy i can't remember their names his name um uh nick something i think no yeah, i feel like it was nick but uh i became sort of phone friends with them and then at the end of my two years at solomon brothers you go back um to have like a reunion of all your classmates and i went to dinner with uh with o'brien oh, his name was brian uh with them and uh but you did have to dance around it i, I remember at jeffrey's i joined jeffrey's in 1998 moved to new york in 1999 there was a guy david handler uh i don't think i'm adding him at this point uh he was sort of head of the tmt group and people would come to me and i was at this point i was out and they'd say is david gay and i'm like why do you ask and they said well we kind of think he is he's not married he does bring this girl to to events and uh and uh i went in his office and there was not one personal thing in his office and it's not like they ever told us this in the gay handbook but you just kind of knew intuitively if you don't present anything of a personal nature you don't say what you did this weekend you don't ask somebody else what they did this weekend, because then they can ask you uh you kind of put up this bubble that people go oh, he's just private and they might wonder whatever so this guy had nothing personal in his office and i'm like yeah he's gay uh i didn't have that much personal probably in my office probably a little bit more that i probably had like some school stuff and now of course i've got pictures of my kids and my husband uh my husband and i getting married in san francisco us with the kids and you know uh it's a very different era um but that was a that was the thing people did was you you built sort of a bubble around yourself oh well, he's just all about work you know let let me ask you guys this because you know I, i've been with reorg for six and a half years now have you have you this is something that i thought about um have you ever thought about not coming out oh well i think we were going to talk later in this in this chat about um client stuff and i've had the experience not recently because i'm retired um, but it's just not something that I would share uh, with certain, you know, sort of, I'm not saying this very well, certainly for pitching, I don't know how that would come up, but um, uh, as you start to work with clients, I I've made the active decision once or twice to just not broach any of those topics because you could tell it wasn't gonna go well and it just wasn't worth it. And um, the question is, is, you know, do you almost tell little white lies to sort of just keep it narrow um, and I have, and I have, I have had that, um, you know, debate with myself as to kind of what I share, what I don't share in, in certain instances, not, not very often. I think the world has changed a lot. Hopefully it'll stay that way, but, but it does still happen. Yeah. And I, I think there are, I would sort of bifurcate the client stuff into like, if you're doing, or at least on the legal side, right? Like if you're, if you're doing some big, like RFP or pitch thing, Clients may actually actively solicit diversity information, including, you know, right. LGBT people. And so you may be actually, it may be just put forward for you, um, which is a totally different context than I think what Carol is describing, which I agree with. 
which is like sometimes you're just in the trenches with a client and you might be wanting to make a personal connection and maybe that's not the right personal connection to make um, at that moment. I think, you know, personally, I'm, I'm pretty open about, you know, having a husband and kids. I think kids tend to be a good way of making connections. And so then sometimes it, it can be hard to not otherwise disclose the rest of your family structure. But, um, you know, I, I have also found sort of over over time, right? Like their clients, even if they themselves aren't LGBT, I've seen more and more people over time have, you know, a child or a brother or a sister, like someone else in their life is LGBT and they actually will engage with that. Even if you don't make it a big deal, if you just mention it in passing as part of trying to make a connection, people will, I have found most of the time people will, will latch into that. And I think that that's, um, that's true. Actually, maybe even more after the pandemic, I think the pandemic humanized a lot, <laughs> a lot of us. I, I'm not the original person in saying that. And but to Bill's point, like it might have been easier pre-pandemic before Zoom invited everyone into your houses to kind of hive off a personal space. Now it's <laughs> a lot more in everyone's face. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, it's funny. I, I think we're, Carol didn't want to say oil and gas deals in Texas, but I think that's kind of the implication that you know. Uh, you know, are you going to, are you going to sort of white lie or sort of just avoid the topic a little bit with, with the, you know, clients down there. And look, I'll, I'll tell you, I, 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 I've, I can't remember which of my brown Muslim colleagues, Zul or Bassam had this experience, but they were down at a company, oil and gas company in Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, whatever. And they're, they're pitching. And the CEO says something like, well, August is dove season and September is duck season and October is Muslim season. And whoever of the two of my colleagues says to, to Thane, who's there, I'm not working on this deal if we get it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. uh, and apparently like, uh, this CEO apparently it's it it didn't didn't sort of wasn't meaning to be offensive and and he just thought it was funny right and just by the way for those young people in the room up until about 2010 2011 2012 it was making fun of the gays was the last okay thing in business you could say fag you could say this in fact my older son goes to an all boys catholic school and he i, I had this conversation with him last night he, he will say it sometimes they they call it um, zesty. Oh, that's you're you're asking too zesty. I'm like, what the hell is zesty? Because well, that kind of means you know you're kind of acting a little bit gay. I'm like, you kind of shouldn't. It's like I don't really. I'm like, you are like doing the same thing. Uh, uh, so he's 14. So I, I'm giving him a little bit of uh, leeway. But um, I think you're right. But what Nick said is like uh, I think people are more sherry. And I think the the kid thing is the opening uh, to the conversation. So you have you don't have to say I'm gay in the Ellen moment, uh, but uh, some of them might say, "What'd you do this weekend?" Uh, oh, uh, my kids had soccer, or we had a recital, and blah blah blah. And then that opens the conversation. And I the story I love telling, and, and the young people are always horrified when I tell the story. They're so offended. Uh, uh, I can remember at least one, but multiple. I'm I'm sure it's multiple meals goes like this but you this weekend oh i was doing high school applications or you know 
we had this recitals for the kids, whatever. Oh, how old are your kids? Oh, this point, 13 and 14. Oh, what does your wife do? Uh, I don't have a wife because they see I have a ring. I don't have a wife, I have a husband. And it's like a little bit of a beat. And more than once, I've gotten, I love Modern Family. Those two guys are so funny. And when I tell this story to college students who are in the diversity world, they are horrified. They think it's so offensive that this, these people, and I, and I, well, I always try to see the goodness in people and look at the, you know, the underlying motivation. They realize they put their foot in their mouth. They don't want to say, oh, that's okay with me, because that sounds even worse, more condescending. So they're trying to find a way to connect. I always try to find a way to connect people. I looked up Nick's bio before this and uh, and uh, was reading a little bit of, about him. Then we found out that he swam at Columbia. So we've had a little conversation about that. And so straight people are trying to – it's their way of kind of saying, I'm okay with that. I'm sorry I put my foot in your in my mouth. I, next time I'm going to say, what does your spouse do? Um and uh, so I think everyone is sort of it's like the the, you know, gender, uh, you know, pronoun thing yeah. uh, for those, trying. Are, trying. those of us who are older. It's really hard. And, you know, Carol and I both being in the older category in the, you know, over the age of 50 category uh, and being LGBTQ plus plus. You know, uh, so on the one hand, we're supposed to be up with things, but, you know, we're a bit behind the curve. It's less, you'll notice, if you were on the video, Nick has his pronouns. Carol and I don't have our pronouns because we're still not in the, like, that. And we're technically incompetent to change it. Right. Uh, but when I, was, <laughs> when I was at DNC, I, I, I was on a Zoom and someone yelled at me, you know, by text, put your pronouns in. Um, so... Uh, yeah. it, you know the world. The world has definitely evolved, and to your point, uh, Nick, I ran into Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines. I was in Denver a few weeks ago, and he happened to the same same airport and same hotel, and we were talking about raising kids. And he was talking about his brother, and I'd forgotten his brother's gay and is married and raising two daughters. He's like, I don't know how two guys raise two daughters. You know, there's a lot of complicated conversations that have to happen. He's like, I don't know if they know anything about that. I said, eh. There's the internet, but um, but to your point, you know that was the whole beauty of National Coming Out Day was so that the more people that knew that they knew LGBTQ people, the less likely those people are, and more people were to be discriminatory towards people. Ignorance breeds contempt. You grew up in a community with no black people, you're you're gonna potentially have a stereotypes in your head about black people or people from China or LGBTQ people. A banker, a financial advisor, and a lawyer walk into a boardroom. So now I know how you guys interact with your clients to get deals. But uh, big picture wise, um, since you guys have started your careers, how has the society changed when it comes to LGBT issues? And, and what has been the impact in the workplace? Uh, handling your sexuality and disclosing information about your personal life and at work. Um, whoever wants to get us started. Bill. Is Carol frozen? <laughs> oh. No, I thought you were frozen for a second there. <laughs> well, we've covered a lot of that. That's what I was trying to think about, sort of... Uh... 
you know, well, it's, it's I, look, I, I, the one thing I think is, look, I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast, but I think it's a lot harder when you're younger and you haven't established yourself. And so Bill and I are kind of, you know, yucking it up and relaxed and I'm retired and, and, um, he's, I don't know what's going on with Bill. That'll be another podcast. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's two things happening in Paris. So society has gotten more comfortable. We obviously sort of are in the New York. So the urban, you know, world, which is probably a little more diverse. Although I would highlight my, my son went to all boys schools and was at boarding schools and there still aren't a lot of, uh, uh, same sex couple parents. It's interesting, but, um, in the, in the single sex schools or the boarding schools. Um, but in general, I'd say New York is a pretty, pretty open and diverse, uh, place and we're older. So, you know, it's, it's, we're kind of relaxed about it and it comes out and it's part of our work life, but, but it wasn't always, and, and society has changed, but we've also changed our, where we are in our career, our comfort level, you know, if you're out looking for a job and it's a bad job market, um, or you're in an environment where it's, you can tell it's not a very friendly place. You're probably going to have to, to, to rein it in a little bit. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about, but outward appearances is, um, I think a huge bias still. Uh, so, um, I actually had, this is obviously a female story. I had short hair for 25 years. And during the financial, I worked at Lazard and during the financial crisis, I didn't have time to get a haircut, I guess. I don't know. I ended up going back to longer hair and the acceptance that I had in pitches and in, in sort of dynamics. And I really, as crazy as this sounds, I think it, it's somehow in American culture, like when a woman has short hair, it's considered, I don't know, uh, less welcoming or less friendly. And Mm -hmm. I joked to, to my colleagues that I should have I should have gone back to long hair many years before because I, I could have been retired 10 years earlier. Um, well, so th- I mean, that point, I'm a big believer that it doesn't matter whether you're LGBTQ or you're black or Asian or you're working class or whatever. Clients do have uh, a subconscious expectation yeah. as to and you're and you're pitching, you're competing. And right. uh, we, we, we've used a, a communication because I call them pitch coaches in the past. And I remember we used them at Jeffries, and he said, the dirty little secret is clients hire whom they like. They don't say that, but that's what the studies have shown. And then they justify it, say, oh, they had the best analysis, the best ideas, the best this. But in reality, it is a personal connection. So how do you make the best? There's the old line, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So I joked that I was, you know, if this was going to be a video, I would have gotten my beard trimmed and my hair cut because I would want to make the best impression. I would have my coat on. I'd want to... I want to not look have a wrinkled shirt. I want to make my best impression of people. And I tell this to to especially in this post COVID world, where people want to dress like freaks. From my perspective, like <laughs> you know, the the idea sounds like an old man here. Okay. That, well, I, I would say this, I would say this to Hakeem Jeffries, who's here right now, the minority leader in the house, who's a friend. You do not wear a men's dress suit with a tie and tennis shoes, unless you are eighty five years old. That's what old men do. It's not like a good look, but, you know, so I'm always trying to get my my colleagues here in this post-COVID world to show up to work always wearing a dress shirt and a suit, if you're men, right. and men's dress shoes, not driving shoes, not Aladdin shoes, not whatever, because our clients expect us to look like investment bankers. 
Along with that is how do you groom yourself and how do you comport yourself? So, you know, like I I, I had an epiphany because there was a, a, a young African-American woman who was getting criticized because she was talking too much during the day to a, an African-American guy who wasn't in her group. And it turns out, as I realized, her group was all white people. And it was her one opportunity during the day to like be in her culture. And I, I, I use the phrase, get her black on, because there's a, there's a, um, uh, a gay guy here at Molas. He was an MD. Now as a senior advisor, Patrick Loftus Hills. He's from Australia. Every once in a while he comes to my office and we get our gay on. Like we talk differently with each other than I would talk outside of my office. Just like straight guys, you get three straight guys together. They're going to talk differently and about different things than they would talk in like a, a normal, you know, mixed company kind of a room um right they may talk about the straight the uh, strip club they went to they wouldn't talk about it they, 20 years ago they would talk about it openly because it was okay to talk about it they would say fag and make fun of lesbians and stuff like that uh so now they don't talk about stuff kind of that way as much i do think it is important with for young lgbtq people this whole like bring my authentic self to the workplace that doesn't mean like diarrhea of your of your persona like everyone's supposed to know everything about you that you went to the white party last weekend and you you know like no one needs to know that your colleagues maybe your closest colleagues but like not everyone needs to know all those details you don't need to hide who you are um but like do you do you come and say like you know you had a terrible fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend and they said you don't say those things either like you don't tell people everything about your life and so I always say to young people, whether it's because you're LGBTQ or you're some other, you know, you're a first generation low income or whatever, part of what you do when you come to work, starting out in a law firm and a consulting firm and us in banking, is you observe. You observe how to act. You don't show up in your first meeting and start talking in the first meeting about what the document should say. I can remember when I was an analyst, I made a comment at a drafting session and the VP was like, hey, Bill made a comment. And I was so terrified to make the comment because I'm like, I don't know if this is right or wrong. I, you know, And it's the same kind of point, I think, in, in being uh, uh, out and, and LGBTQ plus is you don't need to hide who you are and lie about it, but you probably shouldn't wear a big, big button like to work every day saying I'm gay because it's like, there's, pro- there's a lot more about you than just that. Um, and you got you just have to find the right balance. Yeah, I think that, I mean, a lot of what we were saying about sort of our own personal histories too is it, over time, maybe we needed to be more aware of our surroundings and potential risks around it. And I think things have definitely gotten better, but it's really, it's uneven, right? And, you know, just to take sort of like <laughs> a, a legal spin on that, right? Like the current Supreme Court has given us a lot of reason to worry about how solid some of those gains really are, right? Like I, I never thought growing up I would be, I could marry a man. I married to a man. That's great. But like, it's a dynamic system. Um, and so I think that having, you know, a strong community and being vigilant for one another and creating sort of safe spaces is as valuable as it's always been. Um, and it may be that some of those signals that those spaces are out there are, 
uh, more overt now. Maybe it's not, um, you know, the Roxy card or Friends of Dorothy. Like maybe it is actually that there's like cocktail hour for an LGBT group and there's like an actual place and a setting for it. And that's okay. But that I, I agree to some extent with Bill that that doesn't mean, you know, th that it's in a professional setting, it's not always appropriate to be sort of constantly protesting. Um, and yeah. th there are things that we all need to strive for and things that can get better, but it's, it's a balance. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think that Bill and Carol and, and sort of their peers, like I've been really lucky to have LGBT mentors sort of throughout my career and having people who are out and visible, even if it's not, and Bill's right, like we are all a lot more than just being LGBT, but having that as like a known aspect of your, your persona, I think really helps give younger, professionals the confidence to um, both not fully like embrace that as the only aspect of their personality, but then also sort of thrive in that as part of who they are and make it sort of an okay part of who they yeah. bring to work. It, nor it normalizes it. Yeah. It's uh yeah, I agree with that. Power of role models. That's kind of, you know, why I wanted to do this podcast. Uh, I had this friend <laughs> that I'm not a grant marshal in the New York City pride march with all these LGBT questions that I still remember that I actually worked for Rare. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for what would make news in liability management and restructuring in the second half of 2023. Sorry, um, what's, what's going to make the news? Yeah, you're questioning what's, what do we see coming in the, in the restructuring world? Yeah, autonomous in liability uh, and restructuring. I'll, and let the, I'll let the active, active uh, advisors <laughs> answer first, and then I'll chip in if they miss something. Uh, look, uh, you know, notwithstanding certain people's uh, optimism that, you know, the Fed's not going to raise anymore, so therefore everything's going to get better. Um, uh, and, well, I, I don't think things are going to get better. I think we're going to be in a higher interest rate environment for a few years, uh, if not longer than that, uh, which is going to lead to a lot of problems. There's a lot of companies, we've all talked about the debt binge, the borrowing binge, whatever, most of our clients that we worked with, I'm sure it's the same for Nick, um, nobody said, very few people said, how am I going to pay off this debt? They just took the debt while they can get it. They did a bunch of refinancings at cheap rates, uh, during, not in the beginning of COVID, as COVID you know, kind of unfolded, uh, and they put more debt on. And, um, and at the time, they had very high valuation multiples and stock prices. So they're like, well, my market cap is $50 billion. So what's going from 3 billion to 6 billion of debt? No big deal. And then my market cap is now $2 billion and I've got 7 billion of debt. Uh, it's a very different dynamic. So um, we think that we are going to, uh, you know, we're, we're constantly talking with, there's a lot of capital out there, a lot of private capital, Apollo, Aries, people like that, Oak Tree, uh, to come in and help do refinancings. Uh, but that, but multiples are lower. And so um, uh, you're going to have some combination of, you know, kind of hard hits like uh, like Six Terra seems to be doing, you know, now, uh, you know, can't address its capital structure um, to uh, kind of the in-betweens where you need to insert some capital to get something done. So um, we're working on a number of things where a new pref is coming in to pay down the second lien of some of the first lien to get an amendment extend done, but it's rocky. I just had a call this morning. Uh, you know, the, um, 
what was the deal that just got done today uh, or yesterday that priced in like eight, you got priced in the eighties. Uh, uh, sorry, which one? MoneyGram. Yeah. 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 MoneyGram. Um, so people are talking, well, that's kind of setting the market down now. Um, and then, you know, we're going to see a lot of public companies and private companies, big capital structures that have lots of baskets engaging in liability management you know, opportunistically to capture discount, to uh, uh, do things like that, um, to do PetSmart, Chewy kind of deals, uh, uh, and, you know, exchange offers. We're engaged on a bunch of things that we'll be rolling out in the in the next uh, three to six months uh, opportunistically. And it's really a question of how long the downturn lasts, whether those opportunistic things then turn into have to restructures. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have a, a ton to add to that. Um, I, I think that particularly on, I guess, the, the private side of things, the, the low interest rate environment for so long really gave people the ability to refinance and sort of play out the option, even if they maybe should have exited when they could have. Um, and maybe now that multiples are lower, they should have. Um, but, you know, I think that we're sometimes used to seeing whole industries restructure. I think that all of these problems actually are across industries. I'm not seeing, at least in, in my practice, like a, a heavy concentration, right? Like retail is plagued, but that's, I think, for separate reasons than, you know, the oil and gas industry was plagued. Um, and I think that it's sort of like a secular economic, everything is sort of right-sizing in some sense. And there will be more of those chickens that come home to roost. Right. Just to add, and Nick, I agree 100%. So I'm I'm not in, I don't have access because I'm not a firm. I don't have access to the restructuring flows that you all do. And so you're a little bit in the, in the, in the, the cone of restructuring world. And it's always hard to tell, or is it, is it for real or is it just you're getting such a high volume? So I look at sort of the regular press and that ex the trend that you just described, I think is is accurate. There's a, it seems like there's a pretty continuous flow, all different industries, it's just kind of hitting and it still doesn't seem like there's a lot of regular way press. There is about the economy, but not specifically kind of restructuring, you you know, sort of look at default rates. So I don't know what you're seeing in the, in the restructuring world and, oh my gosh, is the wave coming or is the wave here? But it seems like it's this silent creeping, building up um, all really across sectors. So I, that would be my observation. It's, it's not gonna slow down, it's gonna, gonna get worse. Maybe it's not coming massively, but it's, it seems to be kind of continuously picking up. Right. Um, last question and a classic, what's your advice for young? professionals interested in or already in distressed debt and restructuring, especially those that, you know, identify as LGBT. I know, I know Bill's advice, you know, dress professionally. That may be one. Join workout. <laughs> uh, I would say I'd, I'd make two observations. If you're really interested in, in restructuring, uh, and I would tell people when I would interview people at the firms, I did a lot of recruiting. You know, follow some deals, try to get the information, whatever there's, I mean, the world is so different. You, everybody comes to this industry so much more educated. We didn't have classes in the eighties and nineties on restructuring. So, you know, take a class, um, read what there is available, uh, as it relates to 
you know, being LGBTQ plus plus, as Bill called it, I like that. Um, uh, you know, if you end up at a firm and you can just tell your gut tells you that this is not the right fit because of the people, just don't waste a lot of time there. It's it's not really worth it. You'll find your place, and and you know, it, it all kind. Of, I would say, at at this point, t looking back, long term perspective, it all kind of works out um, for the best. Just uh, just you know, use use your gut, follow your sense of of what's right and wrong for you. Yeah, I, I would just add. I, I remember some junior bankers. Uh, a few years ago, probably 2018, we we do a diversity program for college sophomores, and um, uh, so there's two young guys came and sat down uh, in our, our LGBT plus allies breakfast we had um, in advance of the actual program, and they sat at my table and they said, "So when should you come out? You know, we're sort of out at school, um, in some cases not out at home." Um, but you know, should you come out at work? You know, one of them said, Oh, we were advised you should wait a few years, get yourself established. And I said, My God, it's 2019. We have gay marriage legally in the country. Uh, it's such a different world than it was when I was an analyst. Uh, that was 30 years earlier, I guess. Um, and my advice on that is to be yourself, don't hide who you are, don't wear a big badge. You know, like, you know, you don't have to walk in with like waving the, the gay flag everywhere, but maybe you have like a little, you know, flag in your at your cubicle or something like that or whatever. I mean, you know, you, you, you don't want to have to like say, hi, I'm Harvard. I'm gay. I'm Carol. I'm gay. But you, you know, should feel comfortable when you're talking to your colleagues of, um, oh, my ex-boyfriend, you know, my ex-girlfriend, um, uh, you know, things like that to kind of. You know, once once you say it to one or two people, then it's you know it's going to spread. Um, uh, you don't have to sort of announce it uh, uh, every moment. And then also, I mean, Nick talked about when he interviewed that people didn't know what that particular group was. Uh, you know, every college has like a different name for it. So I remember someone coming to me and saying, "This guy wants to meet with." He was at Columbia at the business school getting an MBA. And uh, we're like, we think he might be LGBT. We're not really sure. He's a member of this club. And I looked at the club I'm like, oh, yeah, he's gay. Uh, it, it wasn't clear by the name, but when you like read through it all, you're like, oh, he's either, he's either gay or bi. Uh, I guess you could be questioning. Um, but, uh, uh, but in some cases, like, you know, on people's resumes, it's very clear. And so that's another way to sort of do it. And most firms, like I think to Carol's point, if a firm's not going to interview you or not hire you because it's on there, you don't want to work there because there's plenty of other firms that are going to hire you. They're going to look at it. We had a kid who he put it in, uh, no, I should say kid. He's a, I think a Columbia business MBA student. He's a current Air Force officer. And in his statement, letter he talked about the difficulties of growing up in a very uh, christian family they were missionaries and his challenges of sort of dealing with that and being gay and in some ways being a, a gay officer was easier than being gay in his family and so it was a way of like putting it out there and um it certainly didn't stop mollus from interviewing we gave him a job offer i think he's coming here this summer um or maybe it's, it's full-time i can't remember 
Uh, I think it is this summer. Um, but uh, so I, I think, you know, my, my ex-boyfriend, uh, the one that I was sort of added with uh, by my firm, he had it on his resume that he worked uh, in between his one and two L law school years at the ACL Gay Rights Project. Project, And so, you know, it was no acronym. It was definitely gay rights. And so you could either ignore that um, and not interview, you know, not interview, uh, uh, or, you know, it was pretty clear. Law firms have always been more advanced in these topics, five to 10 years more so than, than Wall Street, than Wall Street investment banks and probably consulting firms. Yeah, I mean, I think the <clears throat> the resume metaphor is a good one, right? Like, it, it's easier said than done to not focus on being gay and whether you should come out of work when you feel sort of that atmosphere. <clears throat> your atmos the atmosphere is otherwise embracing you, but that's something that you you feel like isn't really out there and you want to share. But there's a lot on your resume that isn't just working for the ACLU Gay Rights Project, right? Like, there, there there's a lot of stuff there, and I I would try to encourage people to really sort of embrace, you know, your, your sexuality as like part of who you are, but it's, it's not really the defining moment of who you are at any given time. And, you know, I think the restructuring industry it generally is pretty supportive. I mean, one of the reasons why I actually got into the restructuring industry was um, not because of like LGBT focus, but actually I looking around, there are actually a lot of very prominent, powerful, successful women in the restructuring industry. Um, and not, not enough, <laughs> but not enough, but that also like, it spoke to me and it's certainly more than some areas, right? Like, uh, you know, capital markets and MA, I would, I would suggest don't have, uh, the same level of representation. And so I think the restructuring industry is a, is a good one to look at if you're looking for sort of a community of people that will embrace you. Be genuine, be professional, find your spot and work hard. Um, I, I hope every, I hope all our listeners have some takeaways from this great discussion. Bill, Kara, Nick, thank you so much for sharing your experience and wisdom. I learned a lot. Um, the theme of this year's New York City Pride is strength in solidarity, just like, you know, there's strength in numbers when majority lenders sign a cooperation agreement. There's power in uniting with friends and allies. Happy Pride, everyone, and enjoy your summer. Great. Thank you. Harvard. Thanks, everybody. Happy Pride. For in-court coverage, we take a look at Purdue Pharma, Diamond Sports Group, and Envision Healthcare Corp. In a long-awaited opinion arising out of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit upheld bankruptcy court's authority to approve non-consensual non-debtor releases in Chapter 11 plans. Reversing a controversial ruling from Judge Colleen McMahon of the District Court for the Southern District of New York, the circuit found that the bankruptcy court had jurisdiction and authority under the bankruptcy code to release creditors' direct claims against Purdue's owners, members of the Sackler family, when it confirmed Purdue's plan. The Second Circuit concluded that its own precedent permits non-consensual non-debtor releases and announced a seven-factor test for courts to assess such releases. In the DSG Chapter 11 cases, Judge Christopher Lopez granted motions filed by four Major League Baseball clubs to compel the Diamond Sports Group Regional Sports Network, RSN, debtors to pay the full rights fees due under their telecast rights agreements pending assumption or rejection of the agreements. 
Judge Lopez remarked that although times have changed in the RSN business due to cord cutting and other issues, these new market conditions do not render the rights fees agreed to by the debtors prior to the shift clearly unreasonable as a measure of the team's administrative expense claims. The ruling could diminish the debtors' leverage in negotiations with Major League Baseball to acquire critical direct-to-consumer or DTC streaming rights for eight Major League Baseball teams. This week, Rierig published an analysis of the five-year forecast for Envision and its AMSERG ambulatory surgery business, which would be spun off under Envision's Chapter 11 restructuring support agreement. AMSERG expects to improve sharply in higher revenue per procedure and an increase in gross margin. Envision will rely on reductions in general administrative costs and contributions from management fees to drive EBITDA improvement. Also this week, the U.S. trustee appointed a seven-member official committee of unsecured creditors in Envision cases. Shortly after, Reorg reported on an ad hoc group of Envision's fourth-out lenders organizing with Herrick Feinstein's counsel. The group filed a Rule 2019 statement disclosing that its members, Vibrant, Saratoga Investment, and Aries, collectively hold $58.1 million of the fourth-out term loans. Resolute Investment Managers and TPX Communications ran out this week's list of potential restructurings. Resolute Investment Managers' first-link term loan lenders are in talks with the companies about swapping their holdings for majority control of their investment advisory firm. Negotiations have yet to be finalized as remaining hurdles include an agreement with second-link lenders over their involvement. The company's sponsors, Kelso, has disengaged from the business, sources added. Kelso and Estancia acquired Resolute in 2015. TPX Communications on May 22nd launched a debt exchange that would up-tier 50% of participating lender holdings into a new super senior first lien tranche, with the remaining half to be purchased by company sponsor Sirius Capital at $0.40 cents on the dollar. Lenders who signed on to the deal would also receive 5% of their original super priority claim on a third lien tranche that would be senior to non-consenting term loan lenders. TPX had the support of a majority of existing lenders at the time of the launch. Genesis Care, Diebold, Nixdorf, and Wesco Aircraft filed for Chapter 11 this week. Oncology services provider Genesis Care filed Chapter 11 in the bankruptcy court for the Southern District of Texas to sell its U.S. business and pursue a plan of reorganization for assets in Australia, Spain, and the United Kingdom. Debtors have proposed $800 million in dip financing consisting of $200 million of new money loans and a roll-up of senior facilities agreement obligations, all fully backstopped by an ad hoc term lender group holding $11.4 million in aggregate revolving credit facility claims and $805 million in the term loan B. At the first day hearing, Judge David R. Jones approved the dip on an interim basis, giving the debtors access to $90 million of $200 million new money portion. Diebold, which provides integrated solutions to automate and digitize banking and shopping processes, also entered Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas. In line with an RSA released earlier this week, the debtors seek to confirm a prepackaged plan of reorganization that would equitize over $2.1 billion of prepetition debt and allocate 98% of reorganized equity to first-lien creditors, subject to dilution on account of dip fees and a 6% management incentive plan. To implement the restructuring, Diebold also initiated a Dutch scheme proceeding. At the first day hearing, Judge David R. Jones greenlit the debtor's interim dip financing, unlocking funding for the entire two-tranche $1.25 billion dip term loan. Incora, the trade name for a group of companies formed by Wesco Aircraft and Patent Air, likewise initiated a freefall Chapter 11 case in the Southern District of Texas. Debtors have filed an adversary complaint seeking a preliminary injunction halting two pre-petition New York State court lawsuits challenging the company's 2022 up-tier exchange and an extension of the stay to non-debtor defendants in the New York's actions.
At the first day hearing, Judge Jones approved the Incora debtor's dip motion on interim basis, including funding $110 million of $300 million in proposed financing from an ad hoc group of firstly note holders. An ad hoc group of holders of 2024 and 2026 unsecured note holders, including some of the plaintiffs in the pre-petition litigation, said they intend to file a standing motion and proposed complaint to challenge the firstly note holders' liens in the near term. Top bread stories this week included Lonestein counterclaims and malpractice suit for unpaid fees. Mitel participating lenders asked court to dismiss non-participating lender plaintiffs' claims challenging October 2022 up-tier transactions. Zayo Group's cash burn raises liquidity concerns. Second Brookfield DTLA property handed over to receiver. Trinseo Hudson Pacific Properties Initiation, Sinclair Broadcasts, Herbalife Updates, Amerigas, Seagate, Werner Primary Review, MoneyGram International, TTM Technologies, Pediatric Associates, Finia, Inmar, Emerald Holdings Private Loan Review. Kate Toms is out this week, so I'll be bringing you the week ahead from lovely Forest Hills, New York, the home of the Ramones and 11th overall pick in the 1977 NBA draft, Ernie Grenfeld. The Clovis Oncology debtors start the week on Monday with a combined hearing and final disclosure statement approval and plan confirmation. Their post plan would establish a liquidating trust to wind down and distribute the debtors' remaining assets, including the proceeds of recent sales of the debtors' anti-cancer therapies. The debtors face several objections, including one from the newly appointed Official Equity Committee, which objects to the release of claims that it says could provide a recovery to equity holders. Debtors reject this assertion and contend that the releases were an integral part of the negotiations with Dip Lender 6th Street and the Official Unsecured Creditors Committee. The Equity Committee is also seeking the appointment of a mediator to resolve these plan objections. Tuesday marks the start of a big week in Puerto Rico with two major matters scheduled. An estimation hearing is slated to begin Tuesday, possibly continuing through Thursday. Tuesday's hearing will focus on estimation of the unsecured net revenue claim of Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority or PREPA bondholders. The party's estimation briefs starkly illustrate the multi-billion dollar gulf between the PROMESA Oversight Board and key bond parties. The ad hoc group of PREPA bondholders, bond trustee U.S. Bank, and monoline insurers Assured Guarantee and Sincora Guarantee regarding potential recoveries, with the bondholder parties maintaining that their $8.5 billion net revenue claim should be allowed in full, while the Oversight Board contends that the claim should be estimated at no more than $2 billion. On Wednesday, the First Circuit Court of Appeals will hear oral arguments in Governor Pierluci's appeal of a March 3rd ruling from the Title III Court concerning Act 41, which provides certain protections for private sector employees. The PROMESA Oversight Board sought to nullify the act, arguing that it defeats the purposes of PROMESA. Judge Laura Taylor Swain agreed and ruled that Act 41 and any actions taken to implement Act 41 by the governor or other government officials are null and void ab initio. The order also permanently enjoins the governor from taking steps to implement Act 41 reforms. On Thursday, the party city debtors are slated to have what is probably the biggest party in any bankruptcy case, a combined hearing on disclosure statement approval and plan confirmation. Also up for approval on Thursday is the backstop agreement for the reorganized party city holdco equity rights offering contemplated by the proposed plan. In addition to the $75 million equity rights offering, the plan would equitize over $900 million of debtors' secured notes and approximately $149 million in dip claims. Minority secured note holder Mudrick Capital objects to the plan and backstop agreement because they would give majority note holders a windfall on terms that would reset markets. Also on Thursday, the Lanet debtors will seek confirmation of their prepackaged plan reorganization, which they will be amending on Monday, June 5th, to incorporate a global settlement with the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, which had raised fundamental fairness concerns with the plan's proposal to wipe out unsecured convertible notes. 
Pursuant to the party settlement, convertible notes would now receive their allocation of new warrants to purchase up to 1.25% of new common stock on a pre-dilution basis. The recently announced deal resolves the debtor's motion to disband the UCC and the committee's motion to reconsider the court's confirmation scheduling order. Thank you again for tuning in to this Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.